Today's program is sponsored by Reformation Sites, an easy-to-use website platform helping Reformed churches reach out more effectively. Listen at the end of the podcast for a special offer. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm your regular co-host, Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, here with my other host, Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church uh, in Harrisonburg, Virginia, Congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. And we're delighted today to have... uh, uh, a returning guest. I introduced him last. Not everybody gets that. Not everybody. Yeah. Not everybody wants that. Actually, <laughs> particularly the guests. Um, it's great to have this gentleman back. I introduced him last time. I said you can always recognize him because on any given day he will be the the smartest dressed man on Nassau Street in Princeton. In fact, there's a well-attested rumor. Well, maybe I should correct that. I'm about to start a well-attested rumor <laughs> that this man was the inspiration for ZZ Top's classic, Sharp Dress. Nice. He is, of course, my good friend, a good personal friend, uh, Dr. Matthew Frank. He's the Associate Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University, of which I myself was privileged to be a fellow some years ago, greatest 12 months of my, or strictly speaking, 10 months of my academic life. Uh, had a delightful time on the James Madison program. And he's also lecturer in politics at Princeton University. Matt, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for being here, Carl. Uh, this, it's a good thing this is an audio format only. We're all in lockdown in our homes, and I am not the sharpest dressed man <laughs> on any street at the moment. Um, you can't even tell whether I have pants on, but you'll have to take my word for it. I can hear your pants. They're quite loud, Matt. So, so. Hey, the reason we got you on today, Matt, is we want to talk about a recent Supreme Court ruling that may well have implications for all of us in the medium, maybe even the short term, but certainly the medium to long term future. And that was the, the so-called Bostock ruling of a couple of weeks ago, uh, authored, I think, by uh, Justice Gorsuch, who was, of course, uh, hailed as a, a, a conservative Trump appointee mm-hmm. to the bench some years ago. A, a worthy successor a wor- to Scalia. worthy successor mm-hmm. to Scalia. And I think, in fact, uh, a disciple or, or, or fellow traveler in Scalia's own judicial philosophy. And yet, to the, to the shock of many conservatives and religious conservatives, came out on what many of us consider to be the wrong side of this this ruling. I wonder if you could, first of all, tell us what this ruling was. Why did this case come about and and what was the ruling in it? Uh, Well, the case concerned the interpretation of a statute of the United States, not of the Constitution. Um, And that statute is the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, easily the most significant piece of mid-century 
legislation in the United States, uh, great victory at long last over the Jim Crow regime of the South. But among its provisions, it contains in Title VII, which is about employer discrimination, it contains a, a provision that uh, discrimination because of sex is just as illegal as discrimination because of race. Race, of course, was the animating crisis and controversy that, uh, that generated the great Civil Rights Act of 1964, but the, the, the authors of the act in the Congress that year put the term sex into the law as well. So discrimination on the account of sex or on the basis or because of sex is just as illegal as discrimination on the basis of race. Now, some enterprising and creative, imaginative lawyers had uh, for for some years now tried out the argument in various federal courts that because of sex language of Title VII, discrimination because of sex being prohibited, also encompassed discrimination because of sexual orientation, or more recently still with its higher public profile, because of uh, gender identity or transgender status. Up until the year 2017, no federal court credited this. The first 30 federal judges at the district and circuit levels who were asked the question in employment discrimination cases, is this a violation of Title VII, said, no, of course not. Only since 2017 have a handful of judges seen it otherwise, and a circuit conflict, a case out of the 11th, another case out of the 2nd, and another, a third case out of the 6th circuit, uh, coming out differently, brought these issues before the Supreme Court. So last October, oral argument was held in two sessions. One was about uh, sexual orientation discrimination. That was two cases argued together. The third case argued separately was about gender identity discrimination or discrimination against someone for being transgender. Uh, and then those three cases, which were argued in two oral argument sessions were combined for decision in the Bostock case. So Bostock was one case. It was a sexual orientation case. The Stevens case, it was actually, it came to the court as Harris Funeral Homes versus Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. But it was called the Stevens case because Harris Funeral Homes had fired a person calling himself Amy Stevens for presenting as a woman when he's biologically mm -hmm. male. Uh, so that, that brought the transgender element into it. Anyway, so the case came down on June 15th, six to three, with, as you mentioned, Justice Gorsuch, quite surprisingly to many people, me included, uh, writing for a majority, which also included Chief Justice Roberts. Yeah. We can come back to why he was in that majority. I, I'm not sure why, but the majority six to three said, yes, Title VII uh, does cover sexual orientation and gender identity. And um, uh, what, what made it really interesting was that the, the style of reasoning employed by Justice Gorsuch was not a sort of freewheeling, this is morally required in a just society that we update Title VII, even though the Congress of 1964 did not intend this surely justice requires it now. Nothing of that kind was employed in Gorsuch's opinion. Instead, he purported to be doing, he claimed to be doing a very strict form of textual interpretation or textualism, which is a school of thought that whatever 
we might infer about the intentions of the authors of a piece of legislation. If the text is plain on its face, we simply have to follow what the text says. And Gorsuch's claim, uh, which I find derisory myself, <laughs> was, yes. was, that, uh, was that Title VII, strictly interpreted as a legal text, does mean that discriminating against a gay person is sex discrimination. Discriminating against a transgender person is sex discrimination. I thought one of the interesting things, so much of the surprise about Gorsuch is people had heard uh, about his strict adherence to to the text. And I think that there was a lot of confusion there among some people that were paying attention that Gorsuch being a textualist uh, does not mean that he's quote unquote an originalist. An originalist being more uh, uh, concerned with with okay, what was the intent of those who drafted this legislation that that needs to be the point of concern, but rather how does the text itself um, apply right now, uh, irregardless yeah. of what the original intent was? Is that an accurate kind of summary of, of the um, tension there? There's there's something to that, Todd. There's something to that because, uh, after all, at one point, Gorsuch does say something like this may not have been at all in the minds, probably was not in the minds of the Congress of 1964, uh, but we have a plain text in front of us, and that's what we must follow. What's enacted is not the intentions of the legislators. What's enacted is the law they wrote. Yeah. There's really, conceptually, there's a strong... Uh, affinity between, not a contradiction between textualism and originalism. Uh, And Justice Scalia famously was both a textualist Mm -hmm. and an originalist. And the somewhat oversimplified account of their relationship runs something like this. Um, Textualism is the method Scalia and others in that school of thought employ most commonly in the interpretation of statutes. And what they resolutely refuse to do is look at something called legislative history, committee reports, floor statements Mm -hmm. of senators and congressmen and so forth, because those are not the enactments. Those are, those are political rhetoric and, and sometimes express rationales held by very few uh, rather than by the body uh, that passed the law as a whole. Um, and so, so Scalia famously would, would actually write brief concurrences to decisions he otherwise agreed entirely with, saying, I, I, I concur in everything in this opinion except part 3A2, <laughs> which is the part that cited legislative history, right? Yeah. Um, because he just wouldn't be associated with it. But Scalia himself noted that <clears throat> the textualism runs out runs out of gas a little more quickly when it comes to the interpretation of the Constitution. And so because the Constitution is only 7,600 words long and is the charter to govern the whole country in in principle and perpetuity. And so uh, the Constitution requires a related but somewhat distinct approach, and that is a search for the original public meaning of the words employed in the Constitution. And that can be a, a difficult undertaking. Right. It can involve reading texts like the Federalist Papers and the other public and even private statements of people of the founding generation. 
But it's not so much, again, you know, Scalia insisted, and this is kind of the mature form originalism has taken, uh, Scalia insisted that it was not the subjective intentions of framers of the Constitution we were after, but the original public meaning of the words in the text. So you see the affinity is still there to textualism. Now, Gorsuch in the Bostock case actually says, what we're after is the original public meaning that's language of originalism, or after the original public meaning of the words discrimination because of sex in this 1964 Civil Rights Act. And he actually begins from the assumption that, and here's what he says about it. He says, we proceed on the assumption that sex signified what the employers in these cases suggest, referring only to biological distinctions between male and female. So what's really kind of head spinning about Gorsuch's opinion is that his conclusion that discrimination against someone for being gay or transgender is really discrimination on the basis of sex. It's it's predicated um, on the durably binary quality of the male female distinction. So he reasons this way when an employer fires, say a, gay man, but retains in his employment a straight woman, he's discriminated against the man on the basis of sex. Because what do those two employees have in common? That they're attracted to men. Yeah. Yeah. And so if it's okay for the woman to be attracted to men, then it should be okay for the man to be attracted yeah. to men and to discriminate against the one and not, you know, to fire the one and not the other is a form of discrimination. Yeah. This is, is, is it the but for argument? It's the, yeah, yeah, it's, this is his, this is his reading of the but for mm-hmm. uh, style of reasoning that he says title seven requires. Similarly, uh, when it comes to transgenders, and this is really, really quite interesting. He says, or take an employer who fires a transgender person who was identified as a male at birth, but who now identifies as a female. If the employer retains an otherwise identical employee who was identified as female at birth, the employer intentionally penalizes a person identified as male at birth for traits or actions that it tolerates in an employee identified as female at birth. (laughs) Now, Hang on. I read that fast. And if your head is spinning, here's what he's saying. He's saying, if I have, if I have two people who present at, or identify as women, one is actually a woman and the other is actually a man, and I fire the man, yeah. then I've discriminated against him on account of his sex right. because what I hold as equal between them is that they both identify as women. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what's, what, what's just really weird about this is that so, I mean, people have described Gorsuch's textualism as an as an overweening literalism, or in one case, I think John McGinnis, a Northwestern law professor, said that Gorsuch reads Title VII like like a computer reads computer code, yeah, yeah. Um, without any sense of the natural conventions of language, mm-hmm. which ought to govern legal interpretation. And there's 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 something to all that. But, you know, there's one thing Gorsuch is actually right about. He's right that Title VII forbids discrimination on the basis of the biological sex of a person. What he's wrong about is what the actual discrimination is that takes place when 
someone is fired for being gay or fired for being transgender. In other words, he's making an analytical error about behavior, about employers' behavior. Because actually, a person's biological sex is a matter of complete indifference to the employer who just has uh, an opinion that he doesn't want any gay people on his staff or any transgender people on his staff. Their biological sex is a matter of indifference to him. What he's concerned about is their presentation of themselves as having a certain proclivity or having a certain view of themselves or identity. It's their behavior and not their sex that forms the basis of his adverse employment decision. And that's where Gorsuch has simply gone wrong. Right. Yeah. Now, Matt, uh, you know, many people listening to this will, and and maybe if they've read the, the judgment, we will say, well, my memory of reading the judgment is Gorsuch seems to be pretty clear that he he, he he wants to give a fairly narrow ruling here on employment and Title Seven. Mm. So I'm, I'm guessing many of the, the listeners will be thinking, well, you know, I'm not an employer. Uh, you know, my concern is for the church or for religious freedom. Is this judgment going to have implications? You know, clearly Justice Gorsuch wants it to be narrowly confined right. to employment legislation. Mm-hmm. Is it going to have implications beyond employment? What's going to happen to, say, religious freedom? Anything at all? Or, or is this something yeah, we should be well, worried about? Well, re- remember that, that, that religious freedom is, um, is both institutional and personal. And while institutional religious freedom may be uh, well-equipped to withstand the, the winds that are set blowing by this by this ruling, individuals will be much more vulnerable. So, you know, the Harris Funeral Homes case concerned an employee who was who was hired as a man and then and had to deal with the public in, you know, people in grief, in mourning over the death of their loved ones coming to a funeral home. And this this fellow said that he wanted to start wearing a dress to come to work and call him call himself Amy. And so when the employer in this small business lets him go, uh, I, I don't. I don't know what motives he might have, but he might have a religious conviction that men are men and women are women, and uh, and that people who present as the sex they are not are committing a sin, as well as exhibiting a psychological confusion. Now, I would say that they are certainly exhibiting a psychological confusion. This is now a minority view in the psychological profession, but <laughs> I happen to know that that I'm. I'm supported by some of the most distinguished sure. psychological and psychiatric uh, authorities in the country, like Dr. Paul McHugh at Johns Hopkins. Absolutely. So, I, I, you know, think of some of the major religious freedom decisions in recent years. Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby is not a church. Mm-hmm. This was actually the ground of Justice Ginsburg's dissent. What does Hobby Lobby think it's doing claiming religious freedom? It's not a religious institution. Well, but the owners have religious convictions right. that should not be trampled upon. Uh, Jack Phillips of the Masterpiece Cake Shop. He's not a mm-hmm. church. He's not running a ministry. He's running a, a bakery. Uh, but he too has religious freedom. So we should not forget that many people's religious freedom will be jeopardized by the Bostock ruling precisely because they're uh, trying to live the tenets of their faith in the marketplace mm-hmm. and in civil society as individuals and as as business people. Yeah. Churches and religious schools will still, I think, have some something of a fight on their hands. I, I know that that religious institutions are permitted to hire within their faith and to discriminate on that basis. 
uh, and even to hire only members of their faith and, and hold those employees to the tenets of the faith. Right. But, I, you know, I, I wonder that we're going to see some some cases that test these propositions. Mm-hmm. So right now, the city of Philadelphia is embroiled in a lawsuit involving it's not one of the named parties, uh, but the Archdiocese of Philadelphia in the Catholic Church, uh, which for decades has run foster care and adoption services, mm-hmm. placing kids with families. Well, the, the Catholic Church's adoption and foster care services will only place kids with a couple consisting of a married man and woman. And the city of Philadelphia insists that to stay in the adoption and foster care business under, you know, city licensure and and referral agreements, the archdiocese must begin to place kids with gay couples. Right. The church won't do it. The Bostock ruling gives the city a stronger footing for its case, its struggle with the church, and it weakens the case of the church. Mm-hmm. After all, now it's, you know, the church is officially taking a view that Title VII regards as bigoted or discriminatory. Right. Uh, and even though the context of the, of the Philadelphia case is not Title VII, the rhetorical force of Gorsuch's opinion is going to be brought to bear against exactly. the city for yep. sure. Yep. That's exactly right. Um, the, several years ago in the uh, Hosanna-Tabor case, a very welcome ruling was made by the Supreme Court, I think it was unanimous, that religious schools can designate some of their faculty as ministers of the church with which the school is affiliated and thus enjoy a ministerial exception or exemption from discrimination laws. Uh, In that case, it was the Americans with Disabilities Act. Well, you know, Title VII incorporates the the same principle. Uh, In some cases, in some places expressly, but but the Hosanna-Tabor case uh, should help churches and religious schools. I remember after Hosanna-Tabor, some Catholic bishops moved to alter the terms of their teachers' employment contracts in their dioceses so that every teacher was identified henceforth as occupying a kind of ministerial role you know, even the gym teacher, even the physics teacher <laughs> is responsible to the uh, tenets of the right. faith and yeah. can be let go if giving scandal to or contradicting yeah. those tenets. Exactly. Well, that, that that's all going to that's all going to be tested anew. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, we can and we yeah. can count on that. The church can count on uh, Bostock being viewed as as opening a door to some to some fresh challenges. And so, you know, that's we're right. going to need to be. Uh, aware of that and and uh, uh, mindful of that, I would encourage folks uh, if they get a chance to to read uh, Justice Alito's dissent. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it is powerfully argued. It, it's it's a portrait of a of a of a legal scholar uh, operating on all cylinders. It's bl- it's a blistering, uh, appropriately so. I think response uh, not disrespectful, but but very very clear and very strong. We can um, link that on the webpage. Yeah, yeah, it gives, yeah it's, and, it's and, really and Alito is Alito is rightly worried about just these questions, yeah. you know, of religious freedom. Justice Gorsuch is rather blithe about it, saying, "Oh, well, those are decisions to be made in future cases, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I, you know, I, I trust we'll do the right thing." Yeah. Well, you know, Alito's not so sure, right. and yeah. you know, uh, the title Title Nine context will will. Uh, 
will be affected by this ruling as well. By parity of reasoning, the use of language like discriminate uh, because of sex uh, should mean the same in Title IX as it means in Title VII. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, and the civil rights laws should be construed together mm-hmm. and to make sense together. Yeah. And Title IX affects every educational institution in the country that takes a, a dime mm-hmm. of, of federal funds. Yeah. So to my knowledge, there are two four-year colleges in the United States that don't take any federal funds. And Carl's employed by That's one right. of them. That's yes. right. Praise Grove, God. Grove City College. Praise God. The other yeah. is Hillsdale. Uh-huh. Yeah. Only Hillsdale and Grove City are free of this of the snares of Title IX. Yeah. Yeah. Princeton, where I work, and every other private institution, right. as well as obviously public state universities, they'll all be affected by this. Mm-hmm. So, so be be aware uh, of this, folks. Um, uh, educate yourself, as as Carl mentioned. I think we'll try to to link on our website a link to uh, to Justice Alito's very thoughtful. Um, and clear uh, dissent from this view. Um, our, our guest today has been Matthew Frank. And uh, Dr. Frank, thank you so much for, for joining us for this. Um, we, we hope that people will be very interested in um, uh, their access to religious freedom and, and the impact some of these things are going to have um, on it. Uh, please, uh, if you're one of our listeners, uh, swing by our, our website, mortificationofspin.org, and uh, check out some of the resources we have for you there. Matthew, thanks for being our guest today. We very much appreciate your time and your and your insight on this very pressing issue. My pleasure, Todd. Thanks, Carl. Absolutely. Hey, thanks, Matt. I'll, I was, Thank, yeah, I, I was just, I mean, you guys can make plans if you want to, but I was going to close out the program, Carl. Oh, sorry. Okay yeah, close out the program. Yeah. Matt and I will make our plans <laughs> afterwards. Close, I thought you had closed this out, <laughs> Running like a fine little machine. Come on. Close this, Matt. I will. All right. <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, joining us today, and we'll look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Make a quick note of your official title, Matt, so we introduce you correctly. I am the Associate Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. So it's not in the, it's not the department formerly known as the Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> it is not, it is not, no. Uh, it's gone the way of the no, Dixie the, Chicks, that one. <laughs> So you'd like to do more with your church's website, especially in this day and age when keeping your members and visitors informed is so important. Hi, Eric here from Reformed Media. I've developed Reformation Sites as an easy-to-use website platform to help Reformed churches reach out more effectively. With many beautiful mobile-ready designs to choose from, helpful services, 
and useful features such as sermon manager, online bulletins, courses, and notifications, your church's website will be ready the next time a major event happens. It also integrates with other popular services like Sermon Audio, online donations, and live streaming with pricing that fits into any church budget. To celebrate the launch of Reformation Sites, we're offering free basic setup for a limited time. The first 30 signups may also receive a free wordmark logo designed for their church. Go to ReformationSites.com to get started today, or call me, Eric, at 561-900-6886 to explore the possibilities. Reformation Sites, church websites for a modern Reformation.